0: Good morning. We've uh, what we've learned is the key thing is to take up the offering before the sermon. <clears throat> so this, uh, <clears throat> a number of the kids in our body, thanks to Ann Jones, uh, have been doing a study alongside our uh, church's study on James. There's a little. Uh, Book that our girls have been going through this summer. And uh, just this week, uh, they're reading a passage in Acts. uh, And I was so excited until it ended. Because it ended right before one of my favorite, most awesomest parts of all of Scripture. And so um, I read that to them as a bedtime story. This is the story uh, in Acts chapter 5 of Ananias and Sapphira. It is a good one. And I was thinking, you know, this actually kind of helps to frame what can be a very difficult passage, which we're looking at this morning in James. Acts chapter 5, we read that a man named Ananias, together with his wife Sapphira, also sold a piece of property. They were part of the early church. And with his wife's full knowledge, Ananias kept back part of the money for himself. But he brought the rest and he placed it at the apostles' feet. And Peter said, Ananias, how is it that Satan has so filled your heart that you have lied to the Holy Spirit and have kept for yourself some of the money you received for the land Didn't it belong to you before it was sold, and after it was sold, wasn't that money at your disposal? What made you think of doing such a thing? You have not lied just to men, but to God. And when Ananias heard this, he fell down and died, and great fear seized all those who heard what had happened And then some young men came forward, wrapped up his body, and carried him out and buried him. When Ananias, uh, sorry, uh, about three hours later, his wife came in, not knowing what had happened. Peter asked her, tell me, is this the price that you and Ananias got for the land? Yes, she said, that is the price. Peter said to her, how could you conspire to test the spirit of the Lord? Listen. The feet of those who buried your husband are at the door, and they will carry you out also. At that moment, she fell down at his feet and died. Then the young men came in and, finding her dead, carried her out and buried her beside her husband. Great fear seized the whole church and all who heard about these events. Maybe not the best bedtime story. But the background of this, if you read just a few verses earlier, which is the portion that the kids were given in their little book, starting in verse 32 of chapter 4, all the believers were one in heart and soul. They, nobody claimed that any of their possessions were just their own, but they shared everything that they had. with great power, the apostles continued to testify to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus, and God's grace was so powerfully at work in them all that there were no needy persons among them. From time to time, those who owned land or houses sold them, brought the money from the sales, and put it at the apostles' feet, and it was distributed to anyone who was in need. Joseph, a Levite from Cyprus, whom the apostles called Barnabas, which means son of encouragement, sold a field he owned and brought the money and put it at the apostles' feet. So this is a situation in the early church, the very earliest days of the church, where everybody is being taken care of. All the needs of the people are being met by the community, by those within the community who have resources. Now, where on earth would people have gotten such an idea? Because this is way, way before Marx. Where, Where might anybody have come up with an idea like that. What kind of a movement was the early church? Anybody know? What, what kind, like what religious or ethnic background would the early church have been coming out of? Jewish, yeah. This, this was not an innovation. Look back in Deuteronomy, chapter 15. We talked about this when we went through Torah. Chapter 15 of Deuteronomy. Deuteronomy. <clears throat> We read that at the end of every seven years, this is the the law that God gave his people, at the end of every seven years, you must cancel debts. Bankruptcy was not an innovation of the people who have ads on TV. Every seven years, you must cancel debts, and this is how it's to be done. Every creditor shall cancel any loan they've made to another Israelite. They shall not require payment from anyone among their own people, because... Yahweh's time for canceling debts has been proclaimed. So any loan that you owe to a a fellow Israelite, if you're an Israelite, is canceled. It's wiped away, written off at the end of seven years. That's not seven years from the time you start the debt. That's every seven years on the calendar, whether you start that debt in year one or in year six. Now, here's this is important. You may require payment from a foreigner, but you must cancel the debt that one of your people owes you. So, what this doesn't mean is that every seven years you have radical economic leveling. People who own debts oh, that, that are owed by foreigners still have those, right? So, they still have that money, that, that uh, income stream, but people who owe money to fellow Israelites who are themselves Israelites get that canceled. So, however, in verse 4, there need, no, there need be no poor... Among you. And probably rather than however, that should be translated thus, or in this way, there need be no poor among you. For in the land Yahweh your God is giving you to possess as your inheritance, he will richly bless you, if only you fully obey Yahweh your God and are careful to follow all these commands that I'm giving you today. For Yahweh your God will bless you as he has promised, and you will lend to many nations, but will borrow from none. You will rule over many nations, but none of them will rule over you. Now, if anyone is poor among your people in any of the towns of the land that Yahweh gives, your God is giving you, don't be hard-hearted or tight-fisted toward them. Rather, be open-handed and freely lend to them whatever they need. Be careful not to harbor this wicked thought, well, the seventh year, the year for canceling debts is near. Don't be thinking, great, I'm going to make him this loan today, and then six months from now it's going to be time for it to be canceled. He says, no. Don't show ill will toward the needy among your people. Don't give them nothing. Because then they may appeal to Yahweh against you, and you'll be found guilty of sin. Give generously to them. Do that without a grudging heart. And because of this, Yahweh, your God, will bless you in all your work and in everything you put your hand to. There always are going to be people in need. So, therefore, I command you to be open-handed toward those of your people who are poor and needy in your land. What's the paradigm? There always are going to be people in need, but there's always going to be more than enough among all of the community To take care of those who are in need. Why? Because God is the one who is supplying it. God is the one who is providing. God is the one who is blessing his people. God is the one who has brought them into a good land, is giving them security. He is enabling them through his Torah to live uh, in a a well-structured, healthy society where you have justice, where you have prosperity. God is the one making all that happen, and he does that in order that needy people will be taken care of by their neighbors. He's going to bless some with more than enough so that those who don't have enough, for whatever reason, whether they don't have enough because they had an accident, whether they don't have enough because they tried some venture and failed miserably at it, whether they don't have enough because they're lazy and shiftless, whatever reason, people don't have enough. There always are going to be people who are in need, God says, and I'm always going to be providing for those people. How? Not sort of by magically dropping money in their bank account, I'm going to be providing for those people through those in the community who have more than enough, whom I have blessed in that way. Now, what's vitally important, what undergirds this whole system, this whole paradigm, is the idea that people who have resources are responsible for distributing those to those who are in need. Look back at Acts chapter 5, verse 4. Peter emphasizes this. Remember in verse 3, he says, Ananias, how has Satan so filled your heart that you've lied to the Holy Spirit, you've kept for yourself some of the money you received for the land? didn't that land belong to you before it was sold? Yes, it was Ananias' property. He had the right to dispose of that as he saw fit. And after it was sold, was that money not at your disposal? I.e., when you got the money for that land, wasn't it your responsibility and your privilege, your right as a property owner, to dispose of that property as you saw fit? Yeah. Yeah. So Ananias had, now it it, it doesn't say in here that everybody sold everything they had all at once and then put it all in a central pool. It says when there was a need, somebody who had resources would go and sell something that they had and bring that money and put it at the apostles' feet. It doesn't say Ananias and Sapphira would have had to do this. They had the opportunity to do this. They had the opportunity given the resources they had, so they did. The problem and they, I suppose they could have sold half the property and given that much and given all of that to the apostles and kept the other part of the property for themselves if they had felt like they needed, might need that later. But what they did was they sold it all, but they kept some of the money. They lied not just to the apostles, they lied to God. It was their right to dispose of that property as they saw fit. It was their responsibility to dispose of that property as God led them. Now, at the f- most fundamental level of understanding, we as God's people affirm that everything is God's. This is one of the earliest things we taught our kids. when We, we got this big, giant swing set in our backyard that my parents gave us. And we would ask the girls, whose whose swing set is that? Is that Kara and Alicia's swing set? No. That's God's swing set that he's given Kara and Alicia to take care of. He's given it to Kara and Alicia to share with their friends. He's given it to Kara and Alicia to have fun with, to play with themselves. But ultimately, it is God's. Yet... God gives us charge over whatever of His property He's chosen to give us. And what that means is that we may dispose of that as we see fit, which means, of course, that we should dispose of the things God gives us, not as we see fit, but as God sees fit, yes? But He gives us the opportunity and the responsibility to cooperate with what He is doing or not. The choice lies with us. So let's look at James chapter 2. Starting verse 14, James says, What good is it, my brothers, if people claim to have faith but have no deeds? Can such faith save them? Suppose a brother is, or a sister is without clothes and daily food, And if one of you says to them, Go in peace, be warm and well fed, but does nothing about their physical needs, what good is it? In the same way, faith by itself, if it's not accompanied by works, is dead. Yeah, someone will say, You have faith, I have deeds. Look, show me your faith without deeds, and I'll show you my faith by what I do. You believe that there's one God? Mazeltov. The demons believe that and shudder. You fool, you want evidence that faith without deeds is useless? Was not our father Abraham considered righteous for what he did when he offered his son Isaac on the altar? You see that his faith and his deeds were working together and his faith was made complete by what he did. And the scripture was fulfilled that says Abraham believed God and it was credited to him as righteousness. And he was called God's friend. You see that people are justified by what they do, not by faith alone. In the same way, wasn't even Rahab the harlot considered righteous for what she did when she gave lodging to the spies and sent them off in a different direction? As the body without the spirit is dead, so faith without works is dead. Now, as I mentioned, I think this is one of the more challenging passages in Scripture, especially against the backdrop of Romans, as we have been reading for the last couple of years. There are, there are a few places where I think maybe I can offer a little bit of clarity that may help us, but there's still some tension here that we need to work at. First, I, I remember puzzling for the longest time over verse 18, the first half of verse 18, But someone will say, You have faith, I have deeds. Try this one. Instead of someone, write some idiot and see if that works. Sure, some idiot is going to come along and say, Well, fine, you have faith, I have deeds. Some idiot's going to say, faith doesn't matter, belief doesn't matter, relationship with God doesn't matter, all that matters is what you do. James is not talking to that person right here. He's talking to the person who claims to have faith, but does not have the deeds that reflect that. Someone who claims to have the fire, but isn't giving off any smoke. So that's one point I've found, one place I've found that that's, helps to clarify that, the, the hard thing about Scripture is sometimes it can be written in a very compact fashion, and you have to kind of interpret things. You can also find it useful, for example, when he says in verse 14, what good is it if people claim to have faith but have no deeds? Can such faith save them? They didn't have the little scare quotes when James was writing this, but can such faith, this kind of faith, quote-unquote faith, save them? Perhaps one of the most challenging parts is verses 20 to 24 when James is talking about Abraham. It says Abraham was considered righteous for what he did when he offered his son Isaac on the altar. And we go back and we remember in chapter 4 of Romans where we were a little over a year ago. What does Paul say? He says, what then should we say that Abraham, our father, discovered... In this regard, if in fact Abraham was justified by works and he had something to boast about, but not before God, what does Scripture say? Abraham believed God and it was credited to him as righteousness. Now, to anyone who works, their wages aren't credited to them as a gift. Somebody puts in a Joe puts in a day of work for Ron, it's not like Ron is being a terrific guy by paying him what he owes him. That's Joe's by right. He's do that. If Ron withholds that, Ron's being a jerk. He doesn't get like a medal for paying his employees on time. But to anyone who doesn't work, but trusts God who justifies the ungodly, their faith is credited as righteousness. And David says the same thing when he speaks of the blessedness of those to whom God credits righteousness apart from works, and here we are in the Psalms, blessed are those whose transgressions are forgiven, whose sins are covered. How blessed are those whose sin the Lord will never count against them. It seems like here Paul is talking about Abraham being justified, being declared righteous. How? By faith. In fact, he specifically says if he was justified by works, he had something to boast about, but not before God. Implication being he wasn't justified by works. But I think it's helpful when we look at what Paul's saying here in chapter 4 of Romans. He's specifically talking about what kind of works that Abraham would be performing. Works of what? Works of obedience to or following of what? What's that? The law, works of Torah. In fact, Paul makes a big deal about the fact that that the Scripture says that Abraham believed God, it was credited to him as righteousness before he even entered into this covenant relationship with God through circumcision. And in this way, Paul says, Abraham is the forefather of everybody who believes apart from Torah, i.e. especially these Gentiles who didn't have Torah, they can still be justified. They can still count Abraham as their father. What James is talking about here is Abraham's faithfulness in being willing to sacrifice his son as God commanded, testing Abraham. And I think we get that implied in Paul's discussion in Romans later on when he says, Starting in verse 16, therefore the promise comes by faith that it may be by grace and may be guaranteed to all of Abraham's seed, not only those who are of Torah, i.e. Jews, but also to those who have the same kind of faith that Abraham had. He is the father of all of us. As it is written, I've made you a father of many nations. He's our father in the sight of God in whom he believed. The God who gives life to the dead calls into being those that were not. Abraham trusting that God was able to bring life even from death. That kind of faith, that kind of belief, that kind of confidence, that kind of trust in God is what led him to be willing even to follow as God said and to sacrifice this son that God said would be the way by which Abraham became the father of many. In other words, those works, those deeds... Are evidence, James says, of faith. And if their deeds are not present, then you have every reason to ask whether there is any faith there at all. If you don't see any smoke, then you are right to wonder if there is a fire. In other words, the statement that faith without works is dead is less a theological maxim than it is a diagnosis. If we find in our lives that our deeds don't match what we say we believe, then it may be we don't really believe what we say we believe. This is not an innovation. Jesus, back in Matthew, had this to say when we look back in Matthew chapter 7 the end of his sermon on the mount his great great teaching that he gave his, his stump speech so to speak he, he said starting verse 21 of chapter 7 of Matthew he says not everyone who says to me Lord Lord is going to enter the kingdom of heaven but only those who do the will of my father who is in heaven Many will say to me on that day, Lord, Lord, didn't we prophesy in your name and in your name drive out demons and in your name perform many miracles? And I'm going to tell them straight up, I never knew you. Get out of here, you evildoers. Therefore, everyone who hears these words of mine and puts them into practice is like a wise man who built his house on the rock Rain came down, streams rose, and the winds blew and beat against that house, yet it didn't fall because it had a foundation on the rock. But everyone who hears these words of mine and doesn't put them into practice is like an idiot who built his house on the sand. Rain came down, the streams rose, the winds blew and beat against that house, and it fell with a great crash. It's not enough to say you believe the right things. As James says, look, the demons believe that God is God. That doesn't seem to be working out too well for them. You might even ask, do they really believe that, or do they believe that the right way? If they did, maybe they wouldn't be in opposition to him. Belief has to result in action. It has to. Or it isn't real belief. And if we don't see action in our lives, then we recognize that we are betrayed by our own lives into confessing that we don't really believe what we say we believe. Now, yes, action is going to yield belief too. There are times when we're not sure, when we say, Lord, I believe, but help my unbelief. When we step out and we do something that we're not sure we should be doing. We're not sure God's leading us. We think maybe He is, but we're going to be faithful in it. There are days we show up to pray, we show up to read Scripture, we show up to serve, and maybe we're not feeling the presence of God real strong that time, but we're doing it anyway. That strengthens our belief as well. The last thing I'd want to do is to suggest that there's something wrong with doing things that we ought to do just cuz we're not sure we feel like we ought to that belief has to result in action or it isn't real belief we want us to take a little bit of time now just in quiet ask God whether he is speaking to us about anything right now. Is there a place where we say we trust God but our lives don't show that. We say we trust God to provide for us but we are not generous to those who are in need. Places where we say trust God to be working in us but we don't submit to him that one thing we do that we don't want to stop doing that we want to keep doing that we know we shouldn't be doing but we're keeping that for ourselves are the things that we know we should do that we are not doing Later on in James, he says, anybody who knows the good he ought to do and doesn't do it, that person sins. Let's take some time now and be quiet and hear what the Spirit is saying to us. team comes up, let me close our time. Lord God Almighty, we confess that we have sinned against you in thought, word, and deed by what we have done and by what we have left undone. We have not loved you with our whole heart. We have not loved our neighbors as ourselves. We're truly sorry and we humbly repent. Lord, we ask that the lives we live would be a manifestation of the faith that we claim to have, the faith that we want to have. We do pray that the lives we live would honor and glorify you. We pray you would show us those areas of our life faith needs to manifest in action. We pray that if somehow we don't see any of those, that you would put people in our lives to help us. Whether it's people we live with or work with, people in our house church. Show us, Lord, where our lives are displeasing. trust in the power of your Holy Spirit to renew us continually into the image of your Son, Jesus Christ. We pray this in his name. Amen.